This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show on the power of bravery to free us from the tyranny of perfection and actually lead us to happier, more impactful lives along the way. Have you ever hesitated to speak up in a meeting or raise your hand in class because you were afraid of being wrong? Stayed in a job you hated to not disappoint your parents? Or changed your clothes multiple times before leaving the house, worried that you looked too fat, too young, too conservative, too not right for wherever you were going? Today's guest sees this fear as not just an uncomfortable emotion, but as a fundamental barrier to our ability to live fully realized lives. Reshma Sajani, who many of you know as the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, is the author of an important new book, Brave, Not Perfect, Fear Less, Fail More, and Live Bolder. I just want to share a little bit more about her before she joins us on the air. Reshma began her career as an attorney and activist, and in 2010, she surged onto the political scene as the first Indian-American woman to run for U.S. Congress, and she followed that bold effort by founding Girls Who Code. She's the author of three books, which in addition to Brave Not Perfect includes the New York Times bestseller, Girls Who Code, Learn to Code and Change the World, and Women Who Don't Wait in Line. Among her many honors, she's been named a Fortune 40 Under 40, one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People, and one of the most powerful women changing the world by Forbes. Reshma's TED Talk, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, has more than 4 million views and has sparked a worldwide conversation about how we're raising our girls, which we're going to join in today. So with that, let me say, Reshma, welcome to Women at Work. Thanks for having me. So, Reshma, I am so taken by the book its message, and the whole way that you've shared this with us. But I want to start with how you came upon this kind of radical realization that being brave, not perfect, is the key to living a bigger, better life. So the idea for for this book actually came from a TED Talk that I did a few years ago. I uh, was asked to give a talk, and I wanted to, you know, I I looked at my life, and I said, you know, from the time that I was 13, to the time that I'm now in my early 40s, it doesn't feel like much is changing, right? Women are still less than 20% in Congress, Fortune 500, Silicon Valley, Main Street, you, you name it, right? Nothing seems to really change. And what have I seen with the girls that I've taught that maybe can explain some of this, right? And so I, 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 I saw from my girls, right, that we, as a society, we teach our girls to be perfect and we teach our boys to be brave. And that all this perfectionism training has real consequences for us when we give our adult lives. I give this talk, and the message just strikes a nerve, right? Four four million people watch it. Women and men from all across the country reach out to me. And it became kind of crazy how pervasive the struggle with perfectionism is. It doesn't matter whether people worked at Walmart or an art gallery in Chelsea. It was a universal experience that women felt. And so I wanted to learn more and to get to the bottom of this, and that's what inspired me to write this book. So, Reshma, one of the things that you tell us about in the book was your own journey from going from being a very well-paid, high-power attorney into public service. What was it that you were afraid of in making that choice, and how did you overcome it, and how did your dad surprise you? (laughs) Yeah, you know, my parents came here as refugees, and they had made so many sacrifices in their lives. And I thought by being the perfect daughter, by going to the schools they wanted me to go to, by working in the places they wanted me to work, by that they would be proud of me and, and that being that perfect daughter would make me happy. And so I found myself at age 33 working in finance as a lawyer, even though if you had asked me when I Ever t- since I was 13 years old, what I wanted to do, I would have told you that I wanted to change the world. <laughs> Which you're actively doing. So <laughs> I'm doing now, but I wasn't doing that. And I, you know, I was miserable. I was coming home every day, like in the fetal position. And I remember sitting there one day at work and my best friend called me. And it's funny how like your best friend calls you exactly when your life is falling apart. It's and part of their job description, by the way. Right. 
And it's true. And it's walking into this windowless conference room and just crying and feeling like, God, is this it? And she was like, you know what? Just quit. Just quit. And I was like, I can do that. And I did. And I ended up quitting my job and running for Congress. Crazy thing to do. But it was like the best 10 months of my life. I lose spectacularly, you know, <laughs> thousand votes, spent up $1.4 million. I mean, don't do the math. It's horrible. But the thing that was like my aha moment was that when I woke up the next morning, the first thing I thought was like, oh my God, I'm not broken. I'm not broken. I had thought for so long in my life that if I failed, especially if I failed at the thing that I wanted the most in life, that it would literally physically break me and I wouldn't be able to recover. And when I lost that race, I realized, you know what? That's not true. And maybe I can take other risks in my life and they won't break me either. And I could feel as joyful as I felt those 10 months when I was running for office. So, Reshma, in this process, though, you had to summon a certain amount of bravery just to stand up to the plate to run. Were, did you think you were going to win? Or at that moment, were you accepting that you might fail and you might feel broken? Oh, I actually thought I was going to win. But, <laughs> but I did before I took that step, because I've had a lot of like panic attacks about it, right? I did actually do a visual exercise of saying, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? I could lose. I could lose really bad. I could piss a lot of people off. You know, like, and I kind of visualized it for me. So when it actually did happen, it was almost like it had, I'd already experienced it before. And I, I tell women that is a good tactic um, in kind of getting over that fear. But yeah, I, I definitely thought I was going to win. Listen, I think when, when even though bravery is a moonshot and 90% of the time it probably doesn't work out, I still think in that moment you think that it is. Well, you, you have to have believe to that for way, that right? moment. Right. You have to visualize it working or it won't. Mm-hmm. And but, I very much believe that. I very much believe I'm calling it into the universe. So talk to me a little bit about perfection and what we think it's going to bring us. Because when you were talking about the, your previous life, you thought that by doing what your parents wanted you to do, you would be happy. Was it because yeah, think- you'd make them happy or you thought their advice was about making you happy? You know, I think both. I think that we have these real myths about perfection. You know, I think that if we think that uh, we're polished, we'll be perfect, right? So a lot of us obsess a lot about the way that we look, you know, the way that we sound. Like for me, I obsessed about giving the perfect candidate speech. I thought if I pronounced everything properly, if I had these really witty lines, if I memorized it from top to bottom, that people would think that I was smart enough to be their congresswoman. Right. And so I obsessed over that speech over and over and over again. And I didn't realize that I wasn't connecting. Mm-hmm. I also thought for most of my life that if I was perfect, I'd be happy. So many of you think if I have, if I marry the perfect person, if I have 2.5 kids, if I have a home, if I have that job, I will be happy. And then when we have all these things and we're still not happy, we often think, well, what's wrong with me? And it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's wrong with perfection. Right. I think we think another myth is if, if, if we're not perfect, everything will fall apart. You know, so many of us go from, I made a mistake, to, oh, my God, I'm stupid, to, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired, all in about 10 seconds, right? We, 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 we visualize it all. <laughs> right. And so there's no room for error because we think the worst possible thing is going to happen if we make a mistake. And so it, it basically, we start giving up before we even try because we say, you know, if I can't do it perfectly, why bother? That's the key thing is that if, so it sounds like the idea that we're so trying, it's so important to us to be perfect that then the, the only other option is failure. There is no such mm-hmm. thing as perfection. So if, if that means we're going to fail, then why try? And that keeps us out of the game in a really big way. I think every woman is sitting on a dream and sitting on her unrealized potential, you know, and I think that that's why we're so, we have so much regret and envy. So talk to me. there's so much that we don't do. Right. And it's because of this fear of not being perfect. And it mm-hmm. also sounds like, and the way you're, you're explaining it, that it's like perfect is, um, holds a place for other words like control, safety, mm-hmm. um, uh, a piece that's elusive because it, it, we're alive, we're growing, we're changing, we're challenged. Yeah. It, it it really is an unattainable goal, yet we have it in front of us 24-7. 
Absolutely. And, and are told that that's the standard, right? That that's the expected path. And so we, we pursue it without questioning whether it's genuinely, it's actually genuinely right for us. And I, I think part of that is like, we often confuse, you know, being a go-getter with being gutsy, right? So mm. many of us are ambitious. We go after things, but that doesn't mean that we're gutsy. And I think that's the other thing that we really, you know, confuse that we think that when we're striving for success, we're striving for perfection. Those are two actually very different things. Talk to me about how they're different. So, again, I think that, like, perfection is a place, it's a destination you can actually never reach, as we just talked about, right? And I think that the key is that so many of us, we need to learn how to be gutsy. We need to learn how to take risks. It's not enough to just be a go-getter, to be gutsy. They're two very different things. And I think that, like, that's the thing that many of us don't really say, well, well, I am ambitious. I know just because you're ambitious doesn't mean that you actually go after things or try things where you might actually fail at. Right. It can mean that you're simply setting goals that are hard to reach, but that may be completely constructed within that paradigm of perfection so Mm -hmm. that it doesn't let you become all you can be, make new things happen, um, or make as big an impact as is possible. Yeah, and that's why later in the book I talk about often doing your drama versus wisdom test. And I have to do this for myself, right? Because running for office is, is still my dream. And every so often it'll, it'll creep back in my mind. And sometimes when I convince myself not to run, I have to ask myself, well, Rashma, is that your drama talking? Is that because you don't want to lose the third time? Or are you really using your wisdom and saying this isn't the right time for me? And so I think that there are there you know, for lack of a better, a test that we have to, you know, do for ourselves to really kind of test where is that, is it self-doubt? Is that fear of failure? Or are you making a genuine uh, decision based on something that's not the right time? So something that you talked about that I think was related in the book is when women are offered or in line for leadership roles or a new big opportunity. And women will back off from it, particularly very public leadership roles, because of the fear of failing in front of a lot of eyes. Yep. I have heard this story over and over and over again on this book tour. Uh, In every city, in every country. I remember I was in London and I was talking to a woman who runs technology for a big company, and she was getting up promoted. And she said, you know, I had two two people in mind for my my job. One was a woman who's my right-hand person. And then there was a guy who was in New York and I offered it to the woman because I really wanted her to take it. And she said, you know, I'm not sure. And when I offered her it to her, I said, you know what? I will help you. I will hold your hand through the whole process. Still, the woman said, let me think about it. She, and she said, you know, it took her a week. And she said, you know, if I had offered it to the guy before I even got the words <laughs> out of my mouth, he would have been like, Sure, sign me up. It would have been sure, and how much are you paying me? <laughs> exactly, but this story that I hear it every day when I speak. Every manager has the story, and it, it goes back to that statistic, right, that women, men will apply for a job if they meet 60% of the qualifications, and for women, it's 100. So when we get offered promotions, we think of all the reasons why we can screw it up. Right, and... and- and, and one of the things that, to note that difference between is this drama or is this about something real? There is taking, uh, figuring out in your life, is this going to work for you and the various realities you have? Yep. And and yeah, and, I, and that's yeah. different, though, than running away from it because you're afraid you won't succeed. But you have to go there, right? Because I do think that oftentimes your drama will take over, right? <laughs> yeah. Your fear will take over. And it's real. And then you'll talk yourself into the fact, well, it's really that. You know, I don't really want that opportunity when it's really about your scared. And so that's why later, again, in the book, I talk about, I think we need things in our life that we do, like physical activities, sports, hobbies, that put us in that zone where we're trying something that we're terrified to do, but then realizing how exhilarating it is. (laughs) And that gets us prepared, right, for those moments kind of in our professional life where we need to do the same. Okay, so back up for me for a minute, because when you talk about these things, I'm, I'm coming back to why is this such an issue for women and not for men? And mm. you mentioned girls and boys when you were starting out, but tell me what it is that happens to girls when we're little that sets us on this path. Yeah, 
look, I think we, all you have to do is sit at a playground and you'll see exactly what I'm about to tell you. You know, for our little girls, we're like, be careful, honey. You know, don't swing that, don't swing too high. You know, sweetie, your dress is dirty. Let me come clean you up. Did you take that toy away from her? Give it back. And for our boys, we're like, oh, just crawl to the top of the monkey bars and just jump. <laughs> right. So by 30 months old, in the name of physical protection, we are coddling our girls. We are protecting them. We are literally wrapping them up with bubble wrap. And with our boys, we're teaching them how to be fearless, how to be risk takers, how to be men. And as girls get older, they get addicted to perfection. And they start giving up before they even try. Right? Studies will show that when young women declare a major in college, if they get a B instead of an A on an introductory level course, they drop out. Right. Those boys are like, I got a B. That's amazing. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> and, we, and, and with women, because they haven't, especially young women, because they haven't gotten that net, they just walk away. And we lose so much talent in the workforce so as a result. And I think generationally it's getting worse. You know, because, again, I think, in, you know, we thought for so long that we had to build our girls' confidence. And so if they were in gymnastics and they weren't doing really well at it, we'd pull them out and we'd put them into soccer. But really, you know, in, in the name of building their confidence, we've killed their resilience. And the more and more and more we, quote, protect them, the more we read their essays and rewrite their, you know what I mean, their yeah. homework assignments and make sure that they don't screw up or fail or feel, you know, drop one tear on their face, the more we do that, the more that we make it impossible for them to succeed in the real world. Without a doubt. Because it's not the same rules. For those who have just tuned in, um, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Reshma Sajani. She is the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code and the author of this really incredible book, um, Brave Not Perfect, Fear Fear less, fail more, and live bolder. So, Reshma, in talking about that, that way that we try and protect our girls but actually steal courage from them when we do that, um, is are there ways that it's even worse for children of color, for immigrants? Mm-hmm. Um, does Are there layers to this that we need to tune into? Yeah. I mean, I feel like as a woman of color, as a daughter of immigrants, it was even harder for me to fail. And I was told, you know, I was told you have to work twice as hard. You have to be twice as perfect. And I didn't really have models of failure. You know, even when I was going to run for office, my, my parents were so terrified of my of putting myself out there, right, of, of making a mistake. What would that do? What would they say? What would people say about the family? And so I think that we need even more role models for women and for women of color. And so I love Michelle Obama's new book. I love how she talks about the fact that her and Barack went to couples counseling. She you know, did have to do IVF or when Kamala Harris talks about the fact that I am not perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see women and women of color basically kind of owning the fact that, you know, we don't have to live these perfect lives. It gives us more leeway as women of color to screw up. Help me unpack a little bit so that we can understand what the drivers are behind it. What percentage of it is that, um, Things are so stacked against underrepresented groups that the scrutiny is so intense that there's no there's less room for imperfection. Or is it the sense that you are um, you have the burden of paving the way for all the people that you represent? I think it's both. Look, I think that I think the the first thing is look. Carol Dweck has this line in the book where she said, "If life were one long grade school." Girls would rule the world, <laughs> but it's not, right? right? So we know that in the real world, you know, that you have to take a risk, right? We know that in Silicon Valley, you can't even get funded if you, unless you've had three field startups. But we also know in the real world, if you are a woman or if you are a person of color, there's a, there's a greater consequence for failing, right? Mm-hmm. You're a white guy, you've lost a billion dollars, great, here's a billion more. If you're a black woman, it's like, oh, I don't know, she missed Q1, I don't know if we should fund her. Right. And so that's the issue. Right. And you and not only lose the next shot at funding, but the black woman coming behind you may also lose the funding. Yeah. Well, that's how we feel. Right? right. Like, oh, my God, I can't screw up because if I screw up, what about her? But, but if you don't but, screw up, you won't succeed. Right. And if I am perfect, I'm still not getting funded. Less than 20 <laughs> black women in the history of our country have gotten more. You know, so, it's, so to me, the way that I say it is, you know what? Screw it. The way that we've been operating is not working. The so fear isn't helping here. us advance. It's not helping us advance. The leadership numbers are not changing. They're stagnating. They've been the same. 
So we have to do something different. And that to me means that we have to collectively fail and we have to collectively take risks and we have to collectively take chances. And we, as women, as people of color, we have to support each other when we do that, when we do collapse. You know, our male allies, other women, when you're sitting there and you're in the promotion meeting and women and men are, or people of color, white men are being evaluated differently, you need to raise your hand and say, let me, you know what, let me tell you what's wrong about what you just said. Mm-hmm. And so we need to understand the conscious or subconscious bias that happens in terms of what we who can fail and who can't fail, right? The privilege of failure. That's a great way of putting it, that it really is a privilege to fail and that we have to take that privilege for ourselves. It certainly is. It certainly is. And and I see this in technology all the time, the way that we view an Elon Musk or a Mark Zuckerberg, right? Uh, And and how we view others who make mistakes. It's it's totally different. I love how you reframed it um, as that failure actually is a privilege, that to be safe enough, confident enough to have enough inherent trust in you because when you walk in the door, um, that it's okay to make mistakes and that it's that that tyranny is a lack of privilege that women have been saddled with throughout history. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just unjust in the uh, professional space. It's unjust in the personal space. I think being perfect is boring. I think a lot of us, right, go through our lives feeling a little dead inside. Yes. And I think to go and to take risks, it's joyful. It feels good. You feel alive. It's Absolutely. Like when you're six years old and you're riding down a hill on a bike and the wind's going through your hair and you're like, I feel so damn alive. That's how you feel when you're doing something hard or that might not work out and you're taking a risk. It's an adrenaline rush. And also embracing the imperfections and the failures are the things that make us unique and they're the things that give us character and the things that teach us over time. And that open us up to success, right? Or, or to another, a whole other, I mean, had I never run for office and lost, I never would have started Girls Who Code. Had right, because you would have been busy in office being I an activist. Busy in office. And had I not taken that risk and realized, oh my God, I'm not broken, I wouldn't have had the courage to start an organization about coding when I wasn't a coder. Right. It's so many things that I've done in my life. It's been because I have things have not actually worked out for me. And I've realized that that hasn't broken me, especially, you know, the thing that Laura, I find so interesting. I had um, people have been sending me, you know, since the books come out, incredible videos and emails and notes. And and this one woman made the connections for me is very powerfully between personal bravery and professional bravery. She said, you know, I work in marketing. And I started my job at the same time as, this, as this, my friend Dan. And Dan is now, you know, VP of marketing at Google or something, you know, and I'm still in the same job. And it's because so many times I was offered opportunities and I found an excuse not to take them because I just didn't think that I was brave enough. But then when I look at my personal life, I'm on my fifth round of IVF. I have gone wow. through so much personal trauma and pain and suffering. But you know what? Won't give up. I won't give up. But yet, even though I'm brave in my personal life, I still don't think that I'm brave. And so many women I know are like that, right? We're taking care of a sick parent. We're going through a health crisis, right? Our marriage is falling apart. Something has happened. But you know what? We still show up. We still show up at life and we make it happen because we are courageous. But we still are not courageous enough to raise our hand for that promotion at work it, or to tell somebody, you know, when they bump into us, like, excuse me. Right. It's, it's, it's really interesting. It's almost as if we haven't learned how to bring the personal resiliency that we develop throughout mm-hmm. our lives into our professional selves. And it's mm-hmm. fear driven. Yeah. Because yeah, when or, things suck yeah. in our private lives, it's like that's part of living. But when yeah. things don't go well at work, we attach shame to it. Yeah. It, I mean, because it's true. I mean, so many of my girls, I mean, it's just, it's hard to be a girl. Like, it is hard <laughs> to be a girl. Like, you know, regardless of race, I mean, it is tough. It, even but if we yeah, only start with the extra time we spend every day primping to look perfect. Yeah. Or to like the way that we're judged about our bodies or our hairs or like everything. And a a whole long list of big societal trespasses that are deeply frightening. But it's on all of these different levels. And we carry that into work with us. Yeah. 
We absolutely do. And it's, it's at work where we kind of shrink and shrivel. Um, As opposed I, I to bringing the same that. courage and resilience that we bring to our daily lives in the way that we um, care for the people in our world, our personal communities, we show up with a kind of tenacity that I'm now just realizing how abundant it is there, but that there's a timidity that we bring to work that's deeply programmed into us. Yeah. That's why it's also I'm very careful in this book to, you know, I'm to talk about what kind of bravery am I talking about? Because mm-hmm. some people are like, oh my God, Rashmi, you ran for office. Yeah, that's brave. I could never do that. And I said, you know what? The bravest thing I did was not running for office. The bravest thing I did was after I had my baby, I could not lose the baby weight. And because of my job, I just, you know, I take a lot of photos. I have to do this. And I hated looking at myself. And it was just literally killing my soul. And I knew that the best thing for me was to get to the gym at 730 in the morning. Because that's what worked for my work. But that was when my dog's family was waking up and my son was going out. And I, for a long time, just didn't have the courage to put myself first before them. And finally, the bravest thing I did was just to walk out the door and be like, you you guys figure it out. (laughs) And I am now kind of the healthiest I've ever been. You know know what I'm saying? And so to me, it's not the every, it's not the big bravery. It's not the six women run for president. It's not the women taking over Congress. It's not the women who are taking down these men through Me Too. It is the everyday bravery. It's our micro actions. And on Mm -hmm. that note, we need to take a small micro action here because we're going to take a short break. Um, but I hope those listening will stay with us. And we're going to continue our discussion with Reshma about how we find our bravery and put it to use to live the lives we really want to live. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host. Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Reshma Sajani, founder and CEO of Girls Who Code and author of the amazing book, Brave Not Perfect, Fear Less, Fail More, and Live Bolder. Reshma, welcome back. Hi. Hi. So right before the break, we were talking about kind of micro actions, the small things that we do and think about every day that are reflections of are we trapped in this tyranny of perfection or are we actually learning to be brave in the day-to-day way? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to to dive into this a little bit and talk about what are the other places where that day-to-day bravery um, comes into play because it seems like for those of us who aren't used to taking the brave way, it's a good way to start. Yeah. I mean, like, for example, every woman I know probably in the last week was walking down the street and someone bumped into you and you said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you ran into me. Right. right? <laughs> sorry that you bumped into me. Right. And so, and then we go back and we're like, oh my God, I can't believe I should start. Right. It's so, it's like, I, to be a brave act is to say, excuse me, right? Or to acknowledge to not say I'm sorry. Uh, and, and I think so many of us, you know, on a daily, weekly basis, say yes to things when we should say no because we don't have the time. You know, we're always putting other people's interests or feelings, you know, before our own. That's that's key. So it's it's not just that we reflexively apologize. It's that behind it is this idea that everybody else's feelings are more important than ours. Yes. And it's the same thing to me. I, you know, one of the things I talk about is like, look, you can't be brave if you're tired. And every woman I know is exhausted. <laughs> we don't sleep. We don't eat. We put off doctor's appointments. Right. Like we think oftentimes it's selfish to go to the doctor. And we feel bad about it if 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 that means I can't. You know what I mean? Like I hate to say it, I rescheduled my mammogram appointment four times so that I could be present for like ten million other things for other people. Yes. And what is that about when you do that? It's almost like you feel like you're you come last. Your health comes last, and and and, and also that we aren't at ease. Until we've taken care of everybody else perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. I was telling the story. I, um, you know, I've been on this insane book tour, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, a different city every day. 
and it's like three, four weeks of intense travel, three, four events a day. And it's the last day. My husband, me, and my son are coming back home. And I get upgraded. You know, they don't. Of course, I say to my husband, oh, sweetie, you take it. You take the seat. You sit in the front of us. I'll sit in the back with Sean. Now, this is after, like, no sleeping for three weeks, right? I'm sitting there. You know, he's throwing things at me, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm just mad at myself. And I'm just like, why did I do that? And it's ironic. Right. And I realized I did it because I'm so used to being the martyr. I didn't want to feel like a bad mom. I already felt guilty that I had, you know, been away from him the past couple of weeks, that I wanted myself to suffer a bit. And so that I like literally marched up into the front and I looked at my husband. I was like, we're switching. (laughs) And even though it was five hours later, I was so proud of myself that at least I acknowledged it. Right. Right. And I did something about it. And so that's what I mean about bravery. Right. Bravery is not giving up your first class seat. Right. (laughs) And also that not to be a martyr. And I also want to like just round this out a little bit by saying what's important here is to recognize that sometimes it's about self-preservation. It's Mm -hmm. not about being greedy or a lack of generosity. Because there are times where the generosity of spirit is not only essential to a marriage, but a good way to go through the world. But don't lose your empathy. Right. Exactly. But part of this was about realistically what was going to serve the whole family best was actually if you got some rest. Exactly. Exactly. And And, serve and, and enable you to keep doing this thing that was kind of sounds like the primary activity for the family right then. Right. Right, because we're all kind of invested in this message and 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 thinking about how we're serving people. Absolutely, and it, it's the same thing about even when we know it's a week and we've done five mentorship meetings and we can say no to the sixth one, we feel guilty about it. So let me and ask. So, I want to ask a question though about saying no, where it's not just about our guilt, but where no brings on conflict. At least with mm-hmm. your husband, he was likely like, "See you, hear you." You guys know how to work that stuff out. But what about like that issue of instead of saying apologizing because somebody hurt you and you want to step up and speak out, what advice can you give us for handling that fear that everything's not going to be smooth going? Yeah. You mean when you speak out? Yeah. Or when you invite conflict. I mean, I just experienced this a couple of weeks ago with 60 Minutes. You know, 60 Minutes did an episode about girls encoding, and the protagonist of the show was a man who proceeded to tell 11 million people that the way that girls decode and other women-led organizations do things is wrong and his way is right on the inauguration of Women's History Month. Oh, my God. And I had a choice, right? Either I say nothing or I say something. And I wrote a Medium post, and it went viral. And I was terrified, you know, picking a fight with one of the biggest media networks in the world. Right. But at the end of the day, I think that at times it's better to do that, to acknowledge your fear in doing that, than to let it sit and fester. Mm-hmm. Because I think oftentimes we know whether when we should speak up. And when we don't speak up, it literally festers inside of us. And we go to bed thinking about all the one liners we should have said. Mm-hmm. And so we need to do it for our own peace of mind. But also, there is much more chance that whatever that problem is, is going to change if you speak up than if you keep it to yourself. Thousand percent. It doesn't mean you have to be confrontational when you do speak up, right? So many times when I've encouraged women to do this, or when I've done this myself, it's like, let's just say a microaggression is made or said by a man in a meeting. And afterwards, I'll go up to him and be like, listen, that was inappropriate. He's often like, oh my God, thank you for telling me. I had no idea. Right. And so even though there's a lot of adrenaline going through your body before you're, because you feel like you're confronting somebody, the benefit of doing that is always outweighed because oftentimes he's not going to do that again because maybe nobody had ever told him before right. that that was wrong. And if you can muster the courage and bring with it some diplomacy, you're likely to be able to advance in a conversation where you can learn something and resolve the issue. Yeah, and part of it, Laura, too, is trying to understand why we still care about what they think about us. We Mm -hmm. still are those little middle school girls who want people to play with us. Who want to be liked. Who want to be liked and don't want to not be invited to the birthday party. And it's like we still behave exactly the same, whether we're 30, 40, 60, or 70. And so we got to start really unwinding that behavior and being introspective about what that's really about. 
This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Reshma Sajani, founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, and the author of Brave Not Perfect. And I have to tell you, Reshma, I'd invite you to my birthday party because of all of this. <laughs> Thank you. I would love to come to your birthday party. Okay, good. We'll put that on the list of things to do. I want to back up to something we were talking about in the first half, and we were really talking about the tyranny of perfection and all the ways that it comes out. And I want to look at it against the concept of excellence. Like you were talking before about, you know, ambition and success and performance. Talk to me about how we pursue excellence while freeing ourselves from perfection. Yeah. You know, excellence to me is a way of being, right? It's not a target you hit or miss. It allows you, you know, to take pride in the effort, right, regardless of the outcome. Uh, a woman I had met had told me that she was, uh, she was, she had tried out for the Olympics. She was a diver and it was her last Olympic trial, her last shot to get on the team. She does her dive, falls flat. Her dream is over, right? Trial is done. Pool's clearing out. Her boyfriend's sitting there. He's tapping his feet like, come on, let's go. And she said, you know, give me a minute. She goes up and she does the perfect dive. On her own terms and on her own time. For herself, right? Yeah. She wasn't going to the Olympics. That's excellent. That's excellent. And and I think in many ways, perfectionism can actually impede excellence because you have all this anxiety about screwing up, mm-hmm. right? That's what comes with perfectionism, and and it can make excellence actually crippling. Right, and it, it also when I think of the pursuit of excellence, it requires a humility that enables you to get criticism and feedback, Mm -hmm. which means fundamentally that you accept that something's never going to be perfect and that you want to live in that place of imperfection so that you can grow from it. thousand percent. And that's how athletes live, right? They're constantly living on the edge of their ability and critical feedback. They have a coach who's there telling them, do it again, do it again, do it again. And to me, that's joyful, right? As scary as that might sound to most women who are maybe hearing this, that's actually fun because there's always a a moment to improve, to learn something new, to live in that curious spirit. Look, I'm not an Olympic athlete. And I just my one of my projects in the last year was I taught myself to do flip turns. And part of it was because I walked into the Y and they said and there was a big sign in the lobby that said, be brave enough to do something badly. Oh, I love that. I loved it. But it was it was at the heart of it. It was like, oh, okay, so I can go spin around in the pool and get water up my nose and flop around, but I'm not going to learn to do it if I don't try. Yep. That's right. And, you know, there's there's a joy in learning something new. I think the older we get, the less we have that in our lives. You know, the less we're actually trying things that we don't think that we can do. Most people, most women equate having fun with doing something that they're good at. Mm. See, men know the difference between that. Every man I know has a hobby that he enjoys, but he sucks at it. Right? Tennis, <laughs> golf, right? Fantasy football. We don't have that in our lives. How do right? we, we help our, have activities. Now, how do we help our kids with this? You know, I've got a teenage daughter, and I see her, I see all her friends trying to figure out what are they going to do when they grow up, and that And this what seems to be this ongoing kind of tug of war between what are the things that excite them and where are the places where they think they'll be successful? Mm. I mean, I think that you continue to encourage them to find things that excite them, but that means that you have to leave them in things that they suck at. They have to know what it's like to feel mediocre because then they start equating, you know, the things that they're good at with the things that they quote they like. And when they don't really like them, they get confused. That makes sense. It makes total so sense because I also experience it from the other side that as some of the listeners know, um, I have a bachelor of fine arts degree. I went to art school. I was a trained designer. Um, and part of why I went is my whole family was like, you're good at this. This is what you should do. But that's not what brought me to life for my work. Yeah. And they thought I was crazy when I walked away doing a thing that I was good at. Yep. And that's the thing, right? So many women are in jobs that feel like, ah. About right, and they're scared of leaving. I mean, that's why even you see women at the most senior levels. They're you know they're, they can get a hundred offers, but they're too scared to leave. Uh, not because they're happy, but because they don't know anything else, and, and I s- they've really never gotten in the habit of trying new things. I also see it play out with women in actually in all areas of life and not just at work. The decision to parent, to parent alone, um, Mm. to decide to work or in some communities to decide not to work. Yeah, or to decide not to parent. 
yes. not to have children. Yes. And so it seems I, like it's a it's a repeating theme of our perception of other people's expectations of us. Thousand percent. You know, I had a woman come up to me at a recent thing and she said, you know, I, I, I don't want to have my second I don't want to have a second child. But everybody is pressuring me to have a second child. And I was like, don't have a second child. But it felt <laughs> like I was the first one to actually give her permission to not have a second child. Right. And, and it's it's you know, there's so many things like that that we and then we then we regret that child when we do have that. Right. It's one of the things that you talked about in the book are these signs that perfection has a chokehold on us. Um, like you can be and do anything, but at the same time, you have to be everything or be bold and brave, but don't step on anyone's toes. And I was like, you have choices as long as they don't upset us. Right. And you kind of know in your gut when you're not. Again, that's why I think this book is different than some other books. You know, it's not a management book, but it's really a book about how do you find joy and how do you find happiness? And that, and I think that again, when we, it goes back to this point where, well, if I'm perfect, I'm supposed to be happy. Why don't I feel happy? I have all the notches on my belt. I have all the pedigrees I'm supposed to have. I married the person that I was told that would make, why aren't I not happy? And yet when you say yes to be agreeable, what you're really doing is giving away power and the ability to make yourself happy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at what expense? So, you know, at what what expense? Right. So for what I'm hoping is that by talking about all this, and I'm really, I want to encourage everyone to read the book. I actually just bought another stack of them that I'm giving away to presents to, as presents to women I love who I think are going to benefit from this. Um, yeah. We know, we see all the time all of these ways that limit women's potential for happiness or impact, self-satisfaction um, is hampered by this fear of failing. One of the things you do really well in the book is talk about how do we survive big picture failure. So would you talk first, explain, and you mentioned some of this earlier, but define big picture failure and walk through what are stages that we can go through to pick ourselves up and move on? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, big picture failure is the thing that you think you wanted or you were striving for doesn't work out. And again, because I think many people think that failure will actually break them. I think it's really important to have tactics or strategies to cope when you fail to then, so you can start building that muscle, right? Because I do think that bravery is a muscle. So the first thing I think that's really important is to start uh, celebrating, you know what I mean, your failures when you do fail. You know, far too often, we actually don't uh, acknowledge when we fail, you know, and many women make it seem like it's, everything is so easy. So I would say, you know, throw a failure party. Absolutely. Right? In fact, this is a, a bunch of design firms do this where, you know, they open the team meeting. Like, how did you fail today? Right. I talk about the daily skin girls who basically have a hat that they pass around. So, you know, throw, throw a failure party. The other thing I will say is, you know, for me, you know, give yourself a finite amount of time to grieve about it, to moan about it, to beat yourself up about it, to drink a lot of margaritas, and then move on. Right. It's right? a day or two, but like not a month of margaritas. <laughs> not a month of margaritas. But, you know, it's, it's oftentimes you have to give yourself that moment to grieve, but don't let, don't let it sit with you, right? Move on from it. And learn and from it. And learn from it and analyze it and sit with it, right? And, 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 and but then be done, Right. right? The other thing I think it's really important, too, is because we've wrapped our girls up with bubble wrap and they haven't really gotten so much critical feedback, I think it's really important to surround yourself with rejection, to immunize yourself from failure. You know, I ran for office twice. I recently applied to my community board. I didn't get in. And I took that failure, that, that rejection letter, and I taped it up in my refrigerator, and I look at it every single day as a reminder Right. And so when I get rejected from things, when I post them up in my mirror or my refrigerator or my wall, it doesn't hurt as much. This I'm not hiding from it. This brave person that we're talking to is Reshma Sajani. She's the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code and author of Brave Not Perfect here on Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And if you have questions about today's show, write into Patty at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We always love to get your questions and we'll answer them on the next show. So, I want to come back to this idea of how we recover from the failure. And I love how you're talking about own it, remember it, be aware of the, and embrace the fact that you tried. 
Like it sounds to me like that's part of why that's on your refrigerator. It's not to make yeah. you feel bad about it, but to say you were brave enough to try. Absolutely. I mean, look, I always say this. It is, you know, it is, I celebrate all the women who are running for Congress and winning. And, and you know, I can be so joyful about it because at least I tried. Yes. My biggest fear is being 80 years old and feeling regret and envy about something that I wanted to do, but I never at least attempted at. And that's the thing that's frightened all of us, right? Right. We don't regret what we did. We regret what we didn't do, goes the cliche. Exactly. And and, and even if I never get elected, I'm okay. You know what? I tried. I tried. And my regret would not have been not about serving. It would have been about not trying. Right. I, I know. I recently entered a competition, and it took a lot of time for me and my colleagues. And if we hadn't tried, I think I would have been really sad. And instead, we put to, we worked together to do something we were proud of, and we felt good about it. And we may not yeah. get the fancy award, but at least we gave it a shot. Yep. Which I think, you're right, at that moment of giving it a shot, it also said we're going to believe in ourselves enough to give this a whirl. And that alone yeah. has its own value. And I think the other thing is, is to, when things do work out, to really remember to celebrate. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the stories I tell in the book is that uh, a woman was telling me that it was her sixth graders, you know, award ceremony. And when the boys win an award, they're walking up and they're dabbing, right? <laughs> right. Celebrating. <laughs> and the girls are walking up being like, oh, who, me? And I don't know if this happens to you, Laura, but sometimes when things do work out, you celebrate probably for about 50 seconds. Yep. And then you're on to the next thing. But when things don't work out, you're like, you can't get out of bed for a month. Why is that? Yeah, that's and a sign of it. Right. Because it, we've, we've been taught to be modest. It also suggests that we're uncomfortable with the rewards that come with that bravery. It's true. I mean, I listen, this book, you know, international bestseller, fourth on the list right after Michelle Obama. And all I kept thinking about is, well, why haven't I sold more books? Whereas my husband would have had a party for every bestseller list he hit. It's like when I'd come and, home with a 96 and my dad would say, where are the other four points? Yeah. But you're doing it to yourself. Yep. And we have to unlearn that because we'll never be happy. We'll never be happy if it's never good enough. And it never is good enough. No. Right? And so in order to, to pull ourselves away from that, using that idea that bravery is a muscle, it's something that has to be built up and exercised and then we have to learn how to use it. You talked in the book about a bravery mindset. Now, we know Carol Dweck's work, an open Mm -hmm. mindset, a fixed mindset. Talk to us about a bravery mindset and what we can do to start to develop one and that muscle. Yeah. So the first thing I talk about is get rested. You can't be brave if you're tired. And I think prioritizing your self-care is very important. The second thing is, is, you know, practice imperfection. So where are the places where perfectionism is really getting you down and, and practice, practice imperfection? So one tactic I tell women is, you know, send an email that's semi-consequential with a typo in it. No emotions, <laughs> no explanation points, just say what you want to say. And you'll realize that you're, you know, you won't get fired if you have a typo in it, right? I got to tell you, when you, in that section of the book... I caught myself because I will write an email and I will read it four or five times before sending it and fuss over it like life depends on it. Yeah. And men don't do that. And think about the amount of time that you spend on a weekly basis rereading and rewriting and rereading and rewriting your emails. I could write a hundred more emails that actually need to get written. thousand percent. So practice imperfection. You know, the third thing we talked about this a little bit before, it was this idea of doing something you suck at. Mm -hmm. So... I make myself go to yoga, even though I barely can do a child's pose because I love Shavasana. <laughs> and even though I'm like looking at these five foot eight, you know, Amazon's doing their like, you know, headstands and I feel horrible about myself and I normally hide in a corner, you know, I'm proud of myself that I just show up. And now I show up and I don't judge myself. And so it's really important. And I'm never going to be a yogi. But at least I'm in the habit of doing something that I'm mediocre at that I like. Right. And you're also not doing it to be a yogi. You're doing it because when you're there and doing it, it nourishes you. It makes you happy. It's good for you. I love Shavasana. Exactly. It makes you exactly. So it, it's this framework that really says you got to take care of yourself. And that means you got to be rested. You got to be fed. You got to make sure you're okay. You got to put the mask on yourself in the airplane first. Yeah, and you got to start doing some of these tactics. Look, I think, Laura, we, so, we focus so much about wellness for our minds. 
drink green juice, don't eat gluten, don't eat dairy. <laughs> but we need wellness for our mind, not just our body. Yep. And Brave Not Perfect is about wellness for your mind. It is a practice. You will fall on and off the wagon. But I promise you, bravery is joy. And when you learn, if you, when you unlearn perfectionism and you learn to be brave, you will be happier and you will also be more successful. Without a doubt. But like you said, you have to, when you fall off the bike, you got to get back on. Yeah. One of the things that you noted on the list of here's how to sustain a bravery mindset is that idea of setting daily bravery challenges. What does that look yeah. like? How can we all go about doing some of that for ourselves so that we can build these muscles? So with some of the tactics that I talked about, like today... I'm going to do one self-care act for myself. I'm going to go for a walk, right? Um, You know, tell yourself to send that one email out that's semi-consequential. You know what I mean? With a typo in it, right? Tell somebody no when you don't have time to do something. But get in the habit, right, of doing things that are for you uh, and putting your self-care first. And one of the things that I think is super important in what you're saying, there's a lot that's important, but in particular, that there's an aspect of it that's self-care, but it's also viewing as self-care, hearing and sharing your own voice. Yeah. It's not self-care like give yourself a mask and make sure you've painted your nails as in order to be perfect for other people. It's self-care so that you're well and strong and at peace inside. Yep, and that you feel rested, right? And it's less, so much less about the exterior, right? Because we have so much anxiety about the way that we look and how we're presented and what people see when they see us, you know? But so much about your self-care is about, you know, checking in with yourself, knowing how you feel and, and making choices in your daily life that are going to work for you and putting yourself at the center. I think we have a very hard time as women putting ourselves at, in the center, Right. We always are putting others before us. Yes. And it seems like it's out of habit, out of duty and a lack of belief that we can be successful when we do put ourselves at the center. Exactly. And we need more women out in the center just like you. So, Mm -hmm. Reshma, I have a few questions for you. For people who want to learn more about um, how to be brave, not perfect, where can they find your book? Go to my book at your favorite bookstore um, on online at Amazon or your independent bookstore at Barnes & Noble. Go on my website at RashmaSajani.com. Learn more about what we're doing. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at RashmaSajani. Uh, and join this bravery movement. Like, I have never, Laura, worked on something since I started Girls Who Code that I felt so strongly about in terms of its ability to, like, change our lives. Rashma, what you're doing is incredibly important, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for it for our daughters. I'm grateful for all of us who have things to contribute out there. So thank you, everyone, for listening today. Reshma, thank you for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 and at Laura Zarrow. And Reshma, thank you again. It's been an honor. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Oh, 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 o